There are robots everywhere. And not like the housekeeping robot in the Jetsons. I'm talking internet bots. They're a little less exciting than the robots of sci-fi, but they might be more powerful. Bots are little bits of software that take care of automated tasks online, like search engines use bots to take walks through the internet and pick up new websites. And bots can be bad. They can be used by cyber attackers to take down websites and extort the owners. Spam bots clog up your inbox and internet comments sections. But other bots are pretty helpful, like ones that automatically send you updates about the weather in your area. But could bots help bring about societal change? The 2016 election in the United States was marked by lots of commentary about how politically divided the country had become. The face-off between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and the aftermath of Trump's election to the presidency fueled what seemed like the most polarized public we'd ever seen. What made us so divided? And how could we ease those tensions? A group of researchers thought that bots could give us a clue. One type of bot is a social bot. Accounts on social media that aren't actually people, but are instead little computer programs that strategically share certain kinds of information. Like, there's a Twitter account that just tweets a random frame from the TV show The Simpsons every 30 minutes. That one may or may not solve society's issues, but these researchers programmed two new Twitter bots to help them understand political opinion. One of them was programmed to mostly retweet messages that prominent liberals had shared, and the other was programmed to mostly retweet messages from prominent conservatives. The idea was that if we could just break out of our echo chambers, see what people outside of our political bubbles are saying, maybe it could chip away at polarization. They paid a bunch of everyday citizens to follow whichever bot disagreed with their own political leanings. Of course, this wasn't all super obvious. These people just thought they were getting paid to follow a particular Twitter account. No mention was made of politics. And for the first couple days, the account just shared pictures of nature landscapes. So it wasn't obviously a political account. After a month of Democrats getting conservative tweets in their feeds and Republicans getting liberal tweets in their feeds, Everyone completed a survey, and as far as they knew, the survey was totally unrelated to the Twitter thing. It came from different people and had a totally different vibe. So what happened? Did breaking outside of their political bubbles soften people's views? No. In fact, it was just the opposite. Republicans who spent a month with liberal ideas in their Twitter feeds became significantly more conservative. And the more attention they paid to the bots' retweets, the more conservative they became. It was similar for Democrats, but less pronounced. Democrats who followed a conservative bot did become somewhat more liberal, but not significantly so. But they sure as heck didn't become any less liberal after breaking out of their bubbles. So, there you have it. Bots 1, Society 0. What seemed like a viable strategy for easing polarization just created more of it. And the big question is, why? You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And this week I talked to Chris Bale. He's a computational social scientist and the lead researcher on the Twitter bot study that I just described. 
He's a professor of sociology and public policy at Duke University, where he directs the Polarization Lab. Chris had a book out recently where he follows up on the bot study and explores the ways in which social media distorts our sense of other people's opinions. It's called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. I talked to Chris about his research, the themes in his book, and what hope there is for navigating political polarization online. So I thought one place to start is, I think you might be the first true sociologist that I've talked to for this show. Um, And I'm curious if you could do a little breakdown. In the book, you mentioned you define sociology. And as I read it, I I thought, gosh, that sounds a heck of a lot like social psychology, which is my (laughs) bread and butter. So I wondered if you could just even paint a picture of what sociology is. Like, what are the assumptions that make you a sociologist instead of some other kind of social scientist? And then also, what is the computational part of it? Because sure. that seems pretty central to your academic identity. Yeah. I mean, you know, sociology, I define sociology as the science of social relationships. Um, and that's a little bit distinct from social psychology. Certainly, social psychology is shaped by social relationships. But for sociologists, there's a kind of geometry to social relations. You know, we tend to do things like map social networks or think about how large groups of people interacting with each other create kind of systems level phenomenon. So where, you know, we we, we think of a lot of human behavior as emergent, meaning like, you know, what happens at one time and the, you know, the characteristics of people at one time can't necessarily be used to predict the outcomes at another time. And so, you know, one thing that I think is unique about sociology is we, we capture some of the complexity of social relationships, especially as they unfold over time. And, um, you know, ironically, I think social psychology, if we go way back, uh, grew out of, um, you know, a lot of classical sociology. So the first mention of social psychology that I've ever been able to to find in the canon is the work of Norbert Elias, a very long lost, you know, founding figure in sociology, um, who really thought that, yeah, what we really need is a kind of collective psychology, you know, uh, in, in kind of contradistinction to the then prominent, you know, Freudian stuff going on. And so where does the computational part come into it? So sociologists, you know, sociology 50 years ago looks different than the work that you're doing absolutely, uh, because of the tools that were available. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's funny, you know, in the 1950s, the question on the tip of every sociologist's tongue or a lot of them was mass persuasion. You know, so we were we were exiting World War Two and, you know, and, and there's other parallels too, like, you know, radio was really coming into a golden era tv was you know you know broadcasting was becoming so so prominent and there were actually a lot of questions about technology and mass persuasion that a lot of people were looking at in interesting ways of course though the last you know half century kind of upended everything you know in the social sciences I think we often think of ourselves as kind of data poor. You know, we don't have the uh, particle accelerator and the, you know, the colliders that physicists have or the, you know, tightly controlled experiments that we might want to do a lot of the time. But on the other hand, you know, the kind of explosion of data from not only from social media and the Internet, but also from the mass digitization of human archives has really prompted some of us to say, especially, you know, the great Duncan Watts, a, a really prominent sociologist, to say, you know, social science has finally found its telescope. And I think by that, he means that, 
you know, with all this data, we can finally start to unlock some of these population level processes that were once kind of largely impossible to study. So this new era that, you know, a lot of us are calling computational social science really is trying to work towards some of those large scale questions using these new types of data sources. And also, of course, you know, parallel advances in machine learning and computing power that, that, that enabled these kinds of new types of models. Yeah, I like the idea of these new data stores being the opportunity for social scientists to finally go, aha, <laughs> we've got we've got a way to do some of this stuff exactly. that we've always dreamed of doing and thought we could try to do. And now exactly. we actually have a handle on it. And not to maybe jump into the limitations too early, but it, it can feel like this approach is like, ah, finally, we can just solve all the problems that we've been thinking about. But what are some of the like even just thinking about them at this stage, like what are some of the challenges that we still have to be a little bit cautious before we go all in on the conclusions we can draw from these data? Oh, so so there's so many. I mean, our, our telescope may be better described <laughs> as like a crappy pair of binoculars right now, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, this happens in any kind of paradigmatic shift in science. You know, we reach the peak of expectations when, you know, five, six years ago, people were talking about, for example, getting rid of public opinion surveys, because, you know, maybe Twitter data could be used to, you know, take the pulse of, of, of the public, right. And one of the most obvious things in my research, and I've had a kind of circuitous path into computational social science, you know, I've, I've come out of a lot of qualitative work, actually in depth mm. interviewing work. And so one of the really fascinating things to me is to compare, you know, you know, use multiple methods to try to triangulate uh, social science. And and what we see very clearly there is this just stunningly huge gap between social media and, and, and real life in particular. Um, and, you know, if, if, even though we might be tempted to say, use Twitter or, you know, TikTok or whatever kind of, you know, data we can, we can, uh, you know, scrounge together to make sense of human relationships, we're really, we're just seeing like a small part of it. And, and, and it, it, it turned out in my research that, that understanding that gap became probably the single most important explanation of, of social media and political polarization, which is, which is what I'm currently studying. Yeah. I want to get to the new interview stuff that you've been doing for the understanding these dynamics, but to sort of get that rolling, we kind of have to talk about the, what instigated all of that, which is this big study that that attempted to break echo chambers. And so I'm curious where the, the impetus for this came from, like truly to think like, oh, we just all we have to do <laughs> is just show people the other side of the conversation and people are going to come around. Like, did it did it seem as obvious as I'm making it out to be at the time? Well, I mean, we've known for 50 years that birds of a feather sing together to use the the kind of, you know, axiom of social science identified by the sociologist Paul Lazarsfeld in the 1940s and 1950s, right? People, you know, tend to surround themselves with like-minded people. And the concern, of course, translated into politics is that this can create a kind of myopia, you know, where we can't, you know, uh, see that there's two sides to every story or we can't empathize with the other side and so on and so forth. And, you know, um, in two, 2017, when we launched the study that you were describing, you know, it, it was a pretty tidy explanation of what had happened, right? Liberals were shocked that Trump got elected. Um, you know, people were shocked that Brexit happened in the UK, you know, and the idea of an echo chamber that had insulated us from opposing views provided a really convenient explanation, you know, oh, it's just Facebook's fault. It was Twitter's fault. 
And, um, you know, I was largely in, you know, support of that view at the time and, and, you know, had the hubris of many kind of data scientists of my generation and computational social scientists to say, well, we can just, you know, dive into the Twitter data and figure this out. And so we quickly realized that, you know, we could see patterns of echo chambers. Um, turns out there's a lot of questions about how big they are and, 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 and how persistent they are, but we, we could see them. Uh, but what we couldn't know is, is whether people were kind of creating echo chambers around themselves or whether the echo chambers were influencing their views. And so we're kind of trapped in some circular reasoning. We can see that, uh, you know, some people are talking the same way because they're surrounded by the same type of people. But we'd, what we'd really like to do is break them out of their echo chamber. We'd really like to see what happens, as you said, when you take someone outside their echo chamber. And, you know, we did think that there was a, a good case that this would make people moderate. I mean, there's, you know, several decades of social psychology going all the way back to at least Gordon Allport in the 1950s, which suggests that when you encounter someone from another group, especially in person, uh, you know, you learn that the prejudices or stereotypes you might have had about them aren't true. And then you kind of, you know, you change your views. So, so that was a very, you know, promising potential hypothesis. There was some indication at the time, though, too, of, of what are known as backfire effects, you know, attempts to persuade people actually making them double down in their pre-existing views. So we did have some inkling um, that the experiment might not go the way that so much social science and social psychology might have suggested. So when you saw what the results were, to what extent did you go, yeah, there's that backfire effect <laughs> versus <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. That, that's not what we thought was going to happen. It was a, Even if it, it was possible, it, I, I truly didn't think that was going to happen. Yeah, it, it was certainly a bummer. I mean, you know, like, you know, because, you know, had we found, you know, that people moderated their views, then there's a simple solution, you know, just mm -hmm. dial up the the exposure to, you know, opposing groups. And at the time, this is something that Jack Dorsey told the Washington Post that he was thinking about doing. So we were really hoping for that. Whether, you know, the extent to which we were surprised, I guess, you know, the big question is, does social media create the kind of conditions necessary for reasonable and rational deliberation and mutual understanding? And, you know, um, when you begin to think about it, you know, Ezra Klein, when he wrote about our study, I think really nailed it. He was he said something like, you know, um, think about the last time that you encountered someone with an opposing view online, you know, were you like calmly considering an alternative viewpoint? Or were you really pissed that someone called Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a communist? Or if you're on the other side that, you know, someone called Brett Kavanaugh a rapist, right? Like these are the types of things that are, that are, you know, kind of typical on social media, expressions of identity, not really expressions of ideas. And so the, we want, we want social media to be a competition of I ideas, but really it's a competition of identities. And so, you know, that's, that's really the, the crux of it, I think. So at what point did that then transition into the, the, second wave of this work that is is really what kind of centers and grounds the book project which are these interviews and I, I hadn't realized that that kind of qualitative work was something that you had a background in um and so this is a more natural direction than i thought maybe it was and so what was it about this that seemed like you know the the only way we can really get a grasp on this is to do that quantitative computational stuff again but complement it with this kind of in-depth qualitative interviewing method. 
You know, I think, again, it, we social scientists are usually content to st stick with what we're comfortable with. You know, if you run lab experiments, well, then, you know, run another experiment. If you do surveys, you know, run another survey. And, you know, we're kind of we're not unlike, you know, medical doctors in that way. You know, if you go to surgeon, you're going to, you know, you're going to get surgery, right? Same kind of thing. And and I think like for me, you know, the real inspiration to do this came out of, you know, this moment in, in, in social science where, you know, really we're warring with each other about, you know, specifying the tiniest causal effect using the most, you know, valid design and, you know, recruiting principles of statistics that are almost, you know, impossible to observe at large scale in, in, in the real world, combined with a kind of deep, you know, interpretive tradition where the goal isn't really necessarily to identify general principles, but to ex explore kind of new possible mechanisms that can inspire, you know, future research. And in this way, I think the best kind of social science is goes through cycles of deductive and in inductive reasoning. You know, we, we test theories, but we also need to generate theories. Otherwise, we wind up with this kind of, you know, well-known spotlight problem, right? It's like as if everything's dark and a spotlight illuminates one part of the world, and that's what we study predictably, right? So for me, the qualitative work really was an attempt to say, okay, here we have a somewhat unexpected finding. And to be frank, we didn't know what was driving it. You know, we, on the one hand, we had all this data, we had millions of tweets and, you know, could track, you know, people's networks as they're unfolding over time. We had surveyed them at multiple points in time. We had looked for patterns in the language that they were exposed to in our experiment. Uh, when we, when we paid these Republicans to follow a uh, Democratic uh, Twitter bot and, and Democrats to follow a Republican bot. And we looked at the data every which way using, you know, the, the fanciest techniques in, in machine learning. Um, and really, there was no smoking gun. And so I thought, you know, well, I don't know what it was like for these people to step outside their echo chamber. And I don't even know who these people are. You know, um, why don't we go talk to them? You know, <laughs> the thought of it. Right. <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's, it's kind of a strange thing to do to do a qualitative field experiment, which is ultimately what we hmm. did, where, you know, really, it's a mix of you're actually trying to randomize people in real life. So in this case, we once again paid um, Republicans and Democrats to follow a bot that we created that exposed them to, you know, politicians, journalists, and media organizations from the other side. But we're also getting to know them before, during and after, both online and off through kind of much more in-depth analysis of their social media behavior, but also getting to know, you know, where they grew up. Uh, what they think of Trump, you know, what what are their thoughts on climate change? You know, what did they do the last time they logged into social media? These are the kind of data that we just don't have when we look at patterns from 30,000 feet using the tools of computational social science. So what, how, how many of those interviews did you do? I, f I forget sort of the scope of the qualitative part of things. It's about 154 total. Okay. Yeah. And Maybe is there... Yeah. I hadn't thought of it as a qualitative field experiment. Are, are, is there any real precedent for that? Like, are there examples that come to mind of like other people who have done similar things? I mean, the one I love is Betsy Pollack, who's a social psychologist at Princeton, who did a very famous study of um, uh, television messaging on, and ethnic reconciliation in sub-Saharan Africa, where she was kind of embedded in two communities that either were exposed to this TV messaging and, and were not. Um, so that was certainly an inspiration for me. Um, you know, I think part of the problem is we don't have a lot of people who have training in both fields, you know, often, you know, the people in the qualitative end of the spectrum really are, are, are very critical of, of experimental methods and think that, again, they're estimating tiny effects among mm -hmm. tiny parts of the world. 
And, you know, conversely, the people with the experimental skills, you know, you know, don't really, uh, you know, maybe they're not comfortable talking to people that could be part of it. Uh, but, um, but, you know, also they think, well, that's a small end, right? That's a small sample size. I can't make anything of that. So, you know, really, I think the, the most interesting questions are in between. And, you know, we, we need more, more people to try to find that middle range spot, um, which is another thing that, that sociology, I think, kind of somewhat uniquely contributes. It's reminding me, I recently talked to Robert Cialdini for this podcast, and he has this notion in social psychology of what he calls the full cycle approach to, to social psychology, where you look to the world to get your questions, you bring them into the lab to take them apart, and then you go back out into the world to make sure you still understand what's going on. Yeah, and there's part great. of this that feels like it's doing all of that in some ways simultaneously, <laughs> where you're sort of just exploring qualitatively while you're manipulating variables, while you're measuring stuff quantitatively. And at the end, presumably, you get a fuller, more accurate, real picture of what's happening. Yeah, it's really messy. You know, for example, like, you know, in our qualitative field experiment, um, one of the things that shocked me was one particular individual, his his attitudes on race just completely flip-flopped. You know, he was, he had, you know, fairly, you know, negative views about African-Americans. And like within a few months, he had all these positive views of African-Americans. I was like, what was he seeing? What, what, what did the bot retweet? You know, it's like desperately using the survey data to try to figure it out. And it turns out, you know, he started a romantic relationship with an African-American woman, right? There's like data point that you just don't see, right? If you, um, if you don't, you know, get to know people and get to fill in these blanks. You know, there's many other examples, you know, that, that make the, the research messy, and then in the end, you really realize, you know, well, you know, you sacrifice, you know, breadth for depth, you know, and you really want to understand, uh, you have to care about those idiosyncratic details in a person's life to understand exactly how they're experiencing your treatment. You know, maybe in that case, it made this particular guy more receptive to the racial appeals that the bot was making than the next person. Are there, I was kind of wondering, uh, at a few points, I think you mentioned like moments of surprise or having learned yourself from these interviews, are there things about U.S. public opinion that you ignored, took for granted, didn't appreciate until looking at what people actually said when doing these interviews? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that so many of us are guilty of in the ivory tower is to just assume that everybody shares our perspective on the world, especially in the realm of politics. You know, I mean, if there's one thing we know from survey research, it's that most people avoid politics at all costs, you know, and, and I certainly knew that and was familiar with that research. But I think like really understanding how, you know, for, for a lot of the people we, we met, uh, sports, video games, TV shows have a lot more centrality to their view of the world and, and, and what they care about than, you know, what Mitt Romney said or, you know, what, what uh, Hillary Clinton said. And in fact, you know, they're often avoiding politics. So one of the women that I profile in the book is a pretty interesting woman who I call Patty. Um, and she's just, she's an unenthusiastic Democrat. She, she really like, you know, she doesn't really like either party. But if you ask her, you know, who do you vote for? She says, well, I usually vote for Democrats, you know, when I vote. So she's not, you know, the type of person who we, we, we kind of idealize in social science, which is this like rational creature who's capable of expressing a political opinion on any topic at any time. Right. She's like most people like she just, you know, she doesn't care much for politics. She gets frustrated when politics comes up on TV. She thinks that, you know, both sides are unreasonable. And interestingly, even though she's a Democrat, she had some kind of conservative leaning views. So, you know, she was mildly anti-immigrant. You know, she thought she was worried immigrants were really destroying American culture and taking away American jobs. 
she was kind of concerned about government overregulation of the economy and taxation. In a lot of ways, she seemed like the type of person which journalistic accounts have profiled. Uh, you know, the type of person who would be sympathetic to a Trump-style populism, to some, you know, to someone who uh, you know really could could really be turned. And so when we began to kind of turn up the dial of exposing her to more and more Republicans, I was really curious, you know, is this person going to kind of buck the trend? And maybe I finally found the person who will respond to this stuff. And, you know, what we saw was exactly what we saw in the quantitative experiment. So instead of, say, calmly considering the alternate ideas of a David Brooks, you know, a center right figure and, and maybe moderating her views on liberal issues, she she tuned right into the most extreme parts of the continuum. So, you know, folks like Ted Cruz, you know, attack, you know, owning the libs and so on and so forth. You know, all this kind of she, in other words, she gets exposed to partisan warfare by stepping outside of her echo chamber. And somewhat paradoxically, this then makes her feel like she has to choose sides. So, again, not, you know, engaging in a, in a competition of ideas, but a competition of identities. And, and, and really what we saw is this identity priming effect that came to inform a lot of the rest of the book and a lot of the rest of the research. Yeah, there's a, a way that you frame it, uh, that, that realizing there's a war out there, and not only that, but like, I'm in it. <laughs> like, I didn't realize that I'm part of this battle, so like, I better gear up and, and get ready to, to get in there. Exactly. W one of the thing, pieces of research re recently that's really kind of reshaped the way I think about these things goes to what you're saying, and you said it in the book too, which is, you know, as a someone who reads political psychology, who's at least somewhat interested in how politics unfolds, it feels like, oh, yeah, everyone has their side, everyone knows what they're doing. But the public opinion data that show like huge amounts of the public either don't choose liberal or conservative when offered the option or they say, I don't know, or I'm in, I'm right in the middle. Mm. You go, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Based yeah. on everything that looks like, oh, there's this like huge war that's, that's a brewing with all these extreme views. Right. And so I, I kind of, that transitions a little bit into the metaphor that you use throughout, which is what social media is. Um, so you, you refer to it as a prism, which is sort of a contrast to this notion of just a pure, simple mirror that reflects out. And so that contrast is grounded in this notion of looking glass self, which is a classic sociology idea. So I wondered if you could sort of give us a, a little glimpse into what looking glass self is sort of just as a concept sure. and how social media is or isn't that. Sure. You know, I think what makes us unique as humans is our tendency to cultivate identities and to care so much about what other people think about us. I mean, if, 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 if nothing else is distinctively human, I think that's probably it, right? And, you know, this concept of the looking glass self comes around the turn of the 20th century. And, and basically, the idea is as follows, you know, each day we kind of wake up we knowingly or unknowingly, we're presenting different versions of ourselves. We're kind of, you know, like today I'm in professor mode, tomorrow I'm in uncle mode, whatever it is, right? Uh, we, kind of, we kind of enact these roles. But then importantly, we're constantly scanning our social environment for evidence of which ones of these identities are kind of working, you know, which ones make other people like us and which ones give us a sense of social status. And then we tend to cultivate, uh, again, knowingly or unknowingly, those identities that, you know, make us fit in and make us feel good about ourselves. The, the great tragedy of, of, of human nature, especially from a sociological perspective, is that we're terrible at doing this, right? We, we, uh, we constantly misread the reactions of others. We cultivate identities that aren't necessarily the, you know, the ones that would give us the most status and, 
you know, but the key question is misreading the social environment. You know, how does that happen? And that's where I came up with the metaphor of the social media prism. You know, we might like to use social media as a mirror. And again, you know, like we were just talking about, you know, everybody's so extreme out there. How can everybody be, you know, not not picking a side, right? It's because, you know, those of us who spend time on Twitter are seeing a profoundly distorted, you know, segment of, of the uh, or portrait of the of the American population. You know, we know that 73 percent of posts about politics are created by just six percent of Twitter users. And those six percent of Twitter users have pretty extreme views. So the you know the net effect is that we all think that you know things are much more polarized than they really are. So when we think about the looking glass self and our tendency to cultivate identities, and, and you know this is where the sociology comes in. This is where understanding how social relationships shape this identity cultivation process. We really need to think about how the structure of our platforms changes this all too human process, and I think it does so in two ways. The first is that it gives us unprecedented flexibility to try out different identities. You know, some platforms let us be completely anonymous. Others at least allow us to give selective accounts, you know, of, of what's going on in our lives. And then second, we have these much more efficient means for monitoring our social environment, likes, follows, also comments, you know, we, you know, terms like rate getting ratioed, right? We have all these new metrics that kind of help us figure out whether our presentation of self is working. Now, of course, those metrics aren't the perfect, you know, uh, measure of what most people would think of us. Rather, they're, they're measures of what very active people on social media think of us. Um, but we tend to normalize that and we tend to misunderstand it as evidence that, you know, whatever presentation of self we're, we're using, to borrow the phrase of the you know, legendary sociologist Irving Goffman, um, you know, we tend to cultivate that identity. And, and unfortunately, that has far reaching consequences that encourage extremism and, and make moderates seem invisible, I think. This sort of struck me at the beginning of the pandemic, which I, then I saw you would come to that at the end of the book, which is, I was so struck by the difference between the polling that showed that there this wasn't a partisan issue. Everyone was like, oh, my God, this is awful. Right. We got to buckle down and do something. And yet you go, oh, but it just looks like there's this partisan issue. Mm -hmm. The tricky thing that I am trying to grapple with is that that was a case where eventually the world caught up with the, the social media <laughs> distortion. Mm -hmm. And so are there is there a sense that that is what ha happens that, that people do end up shaping their own views based on these extremists versus I think you kind of talk a little bit about how people might retreat and go, I don't want to get caught in the middle of right. this. I'm just going to get <laughs> thrown under the bus for even expressing an opinion. Right. So how much we care about this social media feedback and, you know, for social psychologists, you might call this social learning. You know, you can think of it as a giant Skinner machine, you know, where we, we perform this thing. And if, if we get, you know, the, the, the pellet of food, then we do it again. Right. But we have to ask about the motivation. Right. So why what types of people would care about gaining status on social media? And the answer our research indicates is people who lack social status in their offline lives. So the story um, that's most vivid in my mind from all the many, many people we met uh, is a guy that I call Ray. And, you know, Ray is a, an interesting individual. You know, when you first meet him, he's, he's very polite, even deferential. He goes out of his way to say, you know, criticize incivility online. Um, you know, he says he's a moderate conservative, but he says mostly avoids politics, you know. Then we go to look at him online, especially on Twitter. 
And I was, you know, shocked to discover that this is basically the most prolific political troll I've ever seen in a decade <laughs> of doing this stuff, right? So like, who is this guy? And, you know, unspeakable, vile stuff that he's saying about, you know, Obama and other leading Democrats. And, you know, when we go back to try to make sense of him, especially, you know, and this is where the triangulation of multiple data sources becomes useful. You know, our survey firm can give us data on his demographics, his, you know, his location. We're able to, you know, discover that he's actually uh, a middle-aged man who lives with his mom in a city uh, that's mostly liberal in a profession that's mostly liberal. And so, like, he's an outcast. You know, this is a social media for him as a kind of refuge where he's gaining something that he can't get in his offline life. And so, of course, you know, the kind of micro celebrity he's able to achieve online isn't very meaningful. Like, you know, the people liking his posts are not having him over for dinner or asking for his autograph or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Right. Um, But, you know, it fulfills for him, I think, a kind of psychic need for status that we all need, you know. So what I'm not saying is that all of us have the potential to do this kind of Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde style transformation that we see in this guy, Ray, you know, the important question is, where do you get your sense of status from? And for, for a lot of us, it's it's not social media. And, and, and to the contrary, talking about politics on social media is more of a liability. It can, it can complicate the hard-fought status we've earned in our life, in our career, or in our family, or friendships, or other kinds of personal relationships. And so the other thing I do in the book is, is profile a lot of moderates and try to, as you say, explain why you know, they really disengage. And of course, the consequence for all of us is that we've come to misunderstand these extremists like Ray as kind of representative of moderate people on the other side when the moderate people have just largely, you know, gone dark. So (laughs) your description of being able to know this guy so well did make me think, are there, despite all the value (laughs) of doing this kind of work, are there like ethical trade-offs have you gotten any pushback on like is this a little invasive that you can sort of stitch together this guy's online and offline life in a way that we can sort of make guesses about why he's doing what he's doing sure there are absolutely ethical issues in this new field computational social science and i think we've seen uh, largely unethical experiments that were done without people's consent especially on social media platforms like facebook but one of the unique parts about, you know, the researchers leading the effort rather than the platforms leading the effort is we are all beholden to ethical standards, you know, by institutional review boards. Now, these aren't perfect. They have to evolve to meet these these changing threats um, to, to people's, you know, confidentiality. Um, but, you know, we at the very least can ask for permission to do all of these things. So, you know, people who participated in these studies um, were told that we were going to have access to, to all of their data. So, um, you know. Um, you know, so we could still, I think, rightly ask questions about about privacy. But at the very least, you know, I, I think in, informed consent is something that is a that is a, a really important, um, you know, whenever possible, and 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 almost always should be collected by researchers. And so, so there are ethical issues here. You know, a lot of them are are complex too, because especially once we start to do. Uh, experiments that extend beyond the lab, you know, that extend to real people in real life. You you, you can't control people um, like you might like to in a lab. You can't control them, for example, talking to each other. And this creates a lot of challenges, not only for ethics, but also for analysis of the data. You know, so we, for example, saw people ganging up on the bot, um, you know, and really egging each other on. So you're like actually observing pure effects, uh, so to speak, in, in the wild. So there are there are ethical issues, you know, we're, we're really uh, I, I always tell my students, you know, 
it's not just about satisfying the lawyers at your university and institutional review board. It's really thinking about unknown unknowns. And, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, we've had to share less than we might like, which is why we go to great lengths in the book to change details of people's professions and, and names, and geographical lo- locations and things of that nature to further protect their confidentiality. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the prior work that you'd done. So you reference a few times work that you've done on, uh, I think it's anti-Muslim bias and how it sort of emerged, which is not something I'm super familiar with. So maybe you could give a, a background and also the ways in which it might have leaked into how you think about the polarization on social media. Yeah. Yeah. So um, my first book is called Terrified, How Anti-Muslim Fringe Organizations Became Mainstream. And really more broadly, it, you know, I'm not an expert in Islam. I'm, I'm, I'm an expert in how ideas compete for legitimacy in the public sphere. And that's really what I wanted to do with that book is develop a theory of why certain ideas come to dominate public discourse. And this was, again, during the early ages of computational social science. And I recognized that there was a potential to use algorithms to track this spread of texts across the, the public sphere. So um, basically what I did is amassed a large sample of press releases that were kind of competing to define Muslims. Are Muslims, you know, a, a, a peaceful religion or are they, you know, secretly, uh, you know, harboring, you know, uh, uh, are they an enemy within, right? Which was, you know, there are many competing narratives about what, it, what Muslim, or, or maybe some Muslims are good and other Muslims are bad, right? But so I, I, I didn't have a, a horse in the race for which one of these ideas was right. I just want to see which one competes and how. And so I recognize that by comparing these press releases to hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles, television transcripts, and, and, and other kinds of texts, um, I could discover, you know, which ones of these narratives is is picking up, getting kind of selected and wound up uh, uh, articulating kind of an evolutionary theory that explains uh, how fringe ideas become mainstream through a process in which, you know, there's a kind of selection, uh, an evolutionary selection of, of uh, fringe, particularly emotional fringe ideas. Um, and that book also used this kind of mixed method approach where, you know, I was seeing these patterns in the data of, you know, how these once fringe ideas were becoming mainstream but also talking about the people who were actually enabling these transformations, the social networks that were uh, enabling these transformations, the fundraising networks that were enabling these transformations. And so that was very much an attempt to explain how extremism becomes normalized. And certainly on, on social media, we see that, you know, left and right these days. So the, the value of the press release is that these are organizations who are kind of spitting out possible stories and it's up to individual media outlets whether they're going to pick it up, right? That's why it's sort of uh, which of these narratives is getting seized upon. Exactly. And, you know, we don't think a lot about ideas that die. You know, we tend to focus on the ideas that survive. And those, of course, are, you know, in the minority, you know. And so when we try to do a uh, epidemiology of ideas, we are often left with, you know, the, the lone surviving idea, right? And, we, and then we tend to generalize characteristics of that idea to, you know, a broader theory. So, for example, like, you know, why did Occupy Wall Street become so successful? Well, like 99% was a great slogan or something like that, right? But like there were any number of other competing ideas about social inequality at the time, right? And, and that's, like, in the end, a pretty impoverished way of explaining why some ideas survive when most ideas die. And so the cool thing about this type of plagiarism detection strategy that I used, I think, is that you're able to, you know, explain why most ideas die and why only a small minority survive. And then the consequences of that survival for the evolution of public discourse, you know, thereafter. 
It reminds me, we relatively recently did the grad student selection process where you're often in that same boat where you go, all we have access to is information about students who already made the cut first, <laughs> right. right? Exactly. And then yeah. we can come up with all these theories about what it takes to be a successful grad student, but we were missing information about all the students who didn't make that cut for exactly. whatever legitimate or illegitimate reason. So it, it sounds a little bit like that, but sort of at this global scale. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in what ways uh, do you see parallels between what you discovered through those kinds of analyses and what you see just on general political rhetoric on social media? Well, I think, you know, one thing that was happening as I was doing that analysis was social media was really coming into its own. So in that book, I tried in one of the you know penultimate chapter, I think it was to, you know, see, well, what does social media mean for all this? You know, because, you know, back back then, this is, you know, t- the aftermath of September 11th, you still have media gatekeepers. You still have people whose job it is to decide what should count as news. And, you know, these people have enormous influence over the evolution of public debate. And one thing that is so obviously shifted is, you know, sure, you know, if, if the New York Times retweets something a lot more, you know, Fox News retweets something, a lot more people are going to pay attention. But there's also the potential for, you know, virtually anyone to go viral and virtually anyone to, to start a far ranging debate. And I think that is where we've seen, you know, this this power of, of um, social media and the design of our platforms to create these kind of somewhat perverse incentive structures for status seeking, you know, really we're optimized for status seeking, which is not the same as being optimized for democracy, much less, you know, democratic deliberation. So um, for me, that's the biggest change. And there's good parts of that change too, right? Democratization of debate is is probably a good thing, but it also means that there's, you know, much less control and, 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 and that has obvious consequences for the evolution of our, of our public conversations. That's a better transition than I anticipated for the last thing I was going to ask about, which is uh, okay, cool. uh, the Discuss It website right. um, or, or app. And so as though bots online and big data and qualitative interviews weren't enough, your lab thought, let's make our own <laughs> social yeah. media platform. Yeah, we are gluttons for punishment, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so that yeah. just even as a thing to do, I'm curious, like, did that like, wh- how, where did that spring from? How did it actually get pulled off? Yeah. And then also, what is it and why might it be valuable? Right. So, I mean, here's the big problem I think we face in this research space is we need to ask fundamental questions about how the design of social media platforms are shaping social relationships. You know, like things like the algorithms inside the guts of the platform, the, the publicness of the platform, you know, how people are brought into conversation with each other, how they find each other. And all of these things are completely off limits if we go to the platforms and say, hey, Facebook, I'd like to make, you know, 300 users anonymous today. Could could you help me out? Right. That's a quick and pretty easy no on their (laughs) part for a lot of different reasons. Right. Some of them reasonable. You know, they can't compromise their user experience. They don't want to deal with the PR issues. They don't want to deal with the legal issues, possible ethical issues. It's just too much risk for them. But on the other hand, we've been content to allow Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, you know, other platforms to evolve in this largely ad hoc and chaotic manner. And nobody's asking the question if we could redesign, redesign social media from scratch, you know, how would we do it? And so we decided that if we wanted to ask these fundamental questions about how we should reform social media, we would have to create our own platform, pay people to use it. And then, you know, um, we would have full control over all the features of the platform and, and try to, you know, identify which ones might be polarizing and, and which ones might be less polarizing. And so our hope, you know, in this effort is that 
we've created a space that, you know, n- not only our group, but other researchers can run all sorts of field experiments to, that, that really simulate a real social media platform. So we, we offered a, a large group of people money to complete a long survey about their views. And then a day or two later, they received a seemingly uh, invitation that uh, seemed to be coming from another group of researchers that basically invited them to test, quote, test a new social media platform. And so, you know, we didn't give them any incentive to use the platform in one way or the other. Uh, We simply gave them an invite code, which unbeknownst to them, paired them with a member of the other party to engage in an anonymous conversation about either immigration or gun control. And we wanted to study anonymity because there's this interesting puzzle with anonymity. You know, on the one hand, anonymity enables that guy, Ray, the Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde guy who hides behind anonymity and says things on social media that will never say in real life. And so there's an obvious danger of anonymity. It can, it can, it can lead to some of the worst, you know, uh, human behavior. You know, we've all heard like, don't read the comments, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's because, the, you know, the comments are usually anonymous. On the other hand, if identity is really spearheading our experience on social media and it's such a key motivation of how we use social media then anonymity also has this feature, which is allowing us to take identity out of the out of the equation, you know. And if we do that, the thinking was perhaps people would be, you know, able to focus more on the content of each other's ideas rather than, you know, the identity, like, you know, the, the us-them dynamic that we see so clearly on uh, most platforms. And so what we did is we, we compared people who use the anonymous app to people who didn't, um, and we were pretty surprised to see that people who used the app depolarized a lot. And perhaps even more surprisingly, Republicans depolarized at about twice the rate of Democrats, um, suggesting, I think, that some of what we're seeing is the result of peer pressure. You know, Republicans may feel because of the orthodoxy and the strong uh, ideology attached to their side, it's, it's, it's you know, really hard to explore unpopular ideas in the context of a very public social media space like, you know, Twitter or maybe even Facebook. And so, you know, this this suggests that, you know, maybe one of the solutions is to create some spaces. You know, I'm certainly not saying that we need to make Facebook anonymous or Twitter anonymous, um, but that there could be a new kind of social media site that enables anonymous conversation and perhaps incentivizes people to convince each other across party lines, creating a new kind of status, right? We can't really you know, the, the funny thing about identity, I think, is you can't tell people, you know, stop being extreme, right? That has the opposite effect. But what you can do is try to create new types of identities and new forms of status, and then kind of nudge people to try to pursue them. And so I think a structure like this would be really interesting for that small part of the population that actually wants to talk about politics. Obviously, there's a huge part that would not be have any interest in talking about politics anonymously online. But that's always been the case. Um, so why not allow political conversations to splinter onto a new platform, much like we've allowed our hobbies to go to Pinterest or our videos to go to TikTok or you know whatever it is? Did the app look good? I, I always think about when psychologists <laughs> design video games to test. Yeah. you go. No one we, would voluntarily. Choose. We spent a lot of time, uh, you know, working with a professional graphic designer and and a lot of UX or user experience people to try to make it u- user friendly. I think in the end, it you know it succeeded. Uh, uh, it, it's it simulated like a reasonable upstart social media company. We even had to <laughs> staff a uh, user support line for a week, which was fun. Hmm. Um, but you know, yeah, you know th- these things. You know, th- th- this final issue of translating, you know, science into public tools is a real challenge. And for this case, we were really just trying to run a research study. But the other mission 
of the Polarization Lab is to create public tools that anyone can use to kind of try to attack polarization from the bottom up. So for example, we have tools that allow people to identify and avoid extremists and boost moderation so that we can all kind of become aware of this tendency for uh, false polarization to occur, for us to overestimate the extremity of the other side and, and, and you know, lose sight of moderation. We have bots that retweet people on a bipartisanship leaderboard. We have other tools that allow you to, for example, estimate your, you know, what your politics look like to other people based upon the content of your tweets, things like that. Because, you know, at the end of the day, even though these top down solutions would be great, like Facebook and Twitter aren't going anywhere. Right. And so, you know, yes, there's things that Facebook and Twitter could do. For example, they could, you know, optimize uh, or boost posts that appeal to people across social divides instead of, you know, kind of preaching to the choir, which is what we're seeing right now. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be up to us social media users. We are the supply side of this problem, you know, and and, and at present, uh, I think an, an underappreciated amount of polarization is coming from us. And so in trying to encourage a more thoughtful, introspective social media user, but also give them tools that allow them to enact and make, you know, non-polarizing habits um, into, you know, core parts of their daily experience on social media is, 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 I think, where we need to go. Nice. Well, I will keep my fingers crossed that we save ourselves from full collapse <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and we, we make social media a pleasant place to be. I uh, just want to say thanks so much for taking the time to talk about this. This was really fun. Sure. Thanks so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, that will do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thank you to Dr. Chris Bale for talking about his research. Once again, his book is Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. You can find a link to the book in the show notes. You'll also find links to Chris's website and the Polarization Lab at Duke University. For more about this show, head on over to opinionsciencepodcast.com. And if you like this stuff, it would mean a lot if you left a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or, you know, any of the other million podcast apps out there. Learn more about the science of opinions and persuasion with one of my online courses. More info at opinionsciencepodcast.com. And that is it. Thank you for tuning in. And I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.